Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Uh, good afternoon. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I am absolutely pleased to be here with Matt Curtin, the founder of Interhack. How you doing, Matt? I'm well, thank you. So, first and foremost, Matt is a computer forensic and cybersecurity expert. Would that be a for fairly accurate term? That's a good description. Okay, I'm glad. Um, why don't uh, before we get into kind of the substance of things, why don't you give us kind of a sketch of your background and you know. What did you do before Interhack? So before Interhack, uh, I was actually at Bell Labs, and this is in the mid to late 90s. We were looking at how to build a global infrastructure for communication and computation. Realized that in order to make that work, (laughs) we had to deal with privacy of the people using that system and also the security of the system. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to work the way that we wanted it to. Uh Ah, and did you build something that did, in fact, protect privacy and security? Uh, What we were dealing with at that (laughs) time was the web, the Internet. So this Uh is very early days of the web. A lot of the early uh, websites that dealt with some of the very first e-commerce sites, those were things that we were working on at that Mm -hmm. time. And uh, I was really into things like distributed computing and... um, that's how we got to the point where we thought about the uh, network, uh, the internet, uh-huh. uh, as a large system. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so this is before the internet was what it was, what it is today. It, it was before all the cool kids got there. <laughs> I gotcha. This is when um, Al Gore first created it, right? Something like that, Okay, yeah. I know. That was <laughs> the obligatory political joke. Uh, I will try to keep it to a minimum. Um <laughs> Um, okay, so um, after Bell Labs, where'd you go? Uh, so that was uh, after Bell Labs immediately. I went to an ad agency called Falgren, uh, in here in Columbus. Uh, they were building what they called an interactive design group. And one of the things that they wanted to do was make sure that they could deliver their content well. And that involved uh, having an understanding of the really low-level plumbing of the Internet. Mm-hmm. So I had a brief stint there, helped them to get that group uh, up and running. And um, then I did uh, my obligatory dot-com stint uh, where I was <laughs> chief scientist at a company called uh, Megasoft Online that did uh, distribution of software. So if you needed to upgrade 100,000 copies of Netscape Navigator, our system would uh, allow you to do that. Interesting. Was that also here in Columbus? Uh, the company was based in New Jersey, but I was head of a forward-looking research group uh, in uh, Columbus, yes. Interesting. Okay. Okay, and then uh, after your dot-com stint? Uh, then I went to The Ohio State University, where I was uh, in charge of the uh, institutional, uh, instructional environment, uh, making sure that all of the software for open source applications mm. that were used in instruction were being maintained properly. Uh, while I was there, I also took on a part-time faculty appointment, and... Um, I left my full-time appointment at Ohio State at the end of September 2000 to come to work at Interhack full-time, and uh, I maintained my faculty appointment for about 15 years at Ohio State. Oh, so you just gave it up? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, and now, um, when you're the founder of Interhack? That's correct. Okay. So you started it around 2000? Uh, in 97, I actually started with a couple of my Bell Labs colleagues. Mm-hmm. And 
AT&T decided that they wanted to blow the company up. They wanted to spin off this thing called Lucent. They wanted to spin off NCR, which they had just acquired in a hostile takeover. And Ah, uh, uh, those were the days. Yeah, that, that, that were very interesting times. And so uh, we wanted to continue working together on this security and privacy thing, but we were all going in different directions. So we decided... We'll just use Interhack as a name that we would uh, be able to organize ourselves under. And we were what uh, you lawyers call an unincorporated association. Oh, my God. Until people started to ask the question, how do I not invent the next problem that you document? We decided to incorporate at that point. And so we incorporated in March of uh, 2000, and I was employee number one in October 1, 2000. Gotcha, gotcha. And you are still employee number one. in. in I am. Okay. Um, And uh, so tell us what Interhack does today. Uh, So we are a cybersecurity firm. Uh, We do work in... Uh, the identification of what information is most important to an organization, where the information is, how it's being protected, and uh, what that means in terms of what the organization should be doing. Uh, We'll do that for uh, organizations proactively, we'll do it reactively, and we also do it in the context of litigation. So I spend a lot of my time in the hot seat as an expert witness explaining things to attorneys and and jurors who need to understand what all of this stuff means so they can all do their job in in the case of things going badly. Right. So I know part of what you do is computer forensics, so you'll obviously deal with discovery issues. Correct. Spoliation or extraction and things like that. I I believe you've also had criminal cases. Uh, Yeah, we do a fair number of those. Right. Um, As to whether this really was on the person's computer, I guess, or... Or whether somebody had access That's to right. it or how it got there, any evidence of uh, somebody else planting it there, um, being able to assess, um, for example, in a, in a case of a, of a defense side uh, situation, if the state is alleging uh, that uh, some conclusion will hold because they've performed some analysis, we'll take a look at that and see. all right, well, does this method actually answer the question that you think it does? Right. Okay. And on the cybersecurity, you, it's a little bit different, although obviously you, you can be retained as an expert witness in cybersecurity litigation as well. Correct. Okay. Um, but in, let's talk about sort of aside from the expert witness functions. So you, I think, alluded to it a little bit. You talked about these assessments and, and this stuff. What kinds of products or really services do you provide in the cybersecurity realm? Yeah, at the highest level, the the easiest way to think of what we do is we can function as a uh, sort of a special operations team. This is not a kind of capability that most organizations have internally, Mm -hmm. uh, but you might need to have some capability. In that case, you probably want to work with us so that we can train with your team, help your guys get up to speed and be able to identify to respond to incidents properly. Uh, In other cases, you might want uh, for us actually to perform that function, the direct action, if you will. Something bad happened. We need somebody to come in externally, take command of the situation, get it under control. Uh, Those are also things we can do. The specific things that we do to achieve those kinds of missions are things like assessing the criticality of information, uh, assessing uh, how well a system uh, responds to attack, 
vulnerability assessments, penetration tests, uh, design uh, implementation reviews, uh, all of those kinds of things uh, we'll cover. Right. Okay. Now, most people are going to, I'm a GC of a company or I'm an executive of a company, and I just presume that my EVP or CIO, whatever you want to call them, in charge of my system, knows all this and does all that. And, uh, you know, I've worked in this field long enough to know that that's probably inaccurate. Um, But why is that inaccurate? Well, it's really interesting. One of the things that we run into is sort of that paradox of the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Mm. And so what happens is a lot of executives believe that their CIO has this under control with a high degree of confidence. Mm -hmm. But the CIO personally self-assesses at a much lower level. So there's a real disconnect Mm -hmm. at the top of the organization. That does come from a lot of the CIO understanding what the constraints are. And the fact of the matter is that they've got only so much money. They've got to keep the organization running. They've got incentives that they need to hit. They're told, we have to hit these targets. We have to hit these numbers. This thing has to go live at a particular time. And the fact of the matter is that if they have to divert from something defensive like security so that they can hit the offensive target, uh, they know when they've had to make those kinds of sacrifices and the rest of the organization might not understand the implications. Right. I mean, it's it's much like anything else. Anything that's a cost center is, and defense is almost by definition a cost center, at least yeah. initially. It may, it may save you money down the road, but right now it's a cost center, whereas if the IT department is, I guess designing data analytics that helps the sales and marketing department um, function better, that's a much more revenue-generating function, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's a really interesting problem is, is that it's only been relatively recently that in IT we've had to have serious conversations about uh, what is the impact of failing to do something. Right. So you look at something like um, how we're going to protect an asset. Okay, we've thought about those kinds of things in investment portfolios and so mm-hmm. on. We understand that when we have an investment portfolio, there's some risk. We understand that to get return, we have to accept risk. We understand things like when you're 20, you're probably going to have a very high level of risk. It's okay to have a very volatile portfolio. When you get to be 60, You want to have a lot less volatility. You care more about stability um, because the impact of a loss is much greater at that point in life. In a lot of organizations, we don't really understand what that looks like from an IT perspective. So at the end of the day, if we're talking about protecting $100, do we spend a dollar to protect it? Do we spend $20 to protect it? If we spend $100 to protect it, we haven't done ourselves any favors. Right. So what is the right number? It's different for every organization, and a lot of organizations don't really know for sure what it is, and that leaves the CIO in a position of having to try to guess, which is not a comfortable place to be. I mean, those are decisions that should really be made at the C-suite level, right? Absolutely. Right. I mean, that's those are strategic decisions. If they want to accept the risk, so be it, but accept the risk with your eyes wide open. Exactly. Okay. Now, I you know, it's interesting... So, uh, cybersecurity issues, data breaches, I mean, if it's big, it, you know, garners a lot of media attention, right? You know, obviously, Neiman Marcus, uh, P.F. Chang's, Target, Wendy's here in Columbus is near and dear to everybody's heart. 
We get that, okay? But there's companies that are be- breached every day that you never hear about, right? That's correct, yeah. And and those can be just as devastating. They're just not they're just not as grandiose. Yeah, it's really interesting because the the question of, you know, it's devastating uh the fact is that when you have a loss of control over sensitive information, you have a loss of control over sensitive information. It's not a question of how uh, bad it is. It's a question of how voluminous it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like unemployment, right? Unemployment is, it, we, we talk about it not being bad when it's at a rate of 5% or 7% right. or something. Well, to the 7% of people who are unemployed, it's, it's bad. It's devastating. So the same thing is going to be true in a data breach situation. We may have only 20,000 people affected, uh, but to those 20,000 people, uh, they have the same kinds of issues as if it happened to be 200 million. It's, right. it's, it's, it's always a very individual uh, impact, and, and it's only a question of how many people are affected, really. Right, and, and frankly, the, the loss of goodwill and trust in the company that housed and owned or maintained that data whether you're the biggest company in America or you're fairly small in an industry, uh, the the impact could be even more devastating on a smaller company um, and could drive them out if nobody trusts them. Certainly, oh. and obviously the you know it's one thing if you're if you're a government agency and everybody has to do business with you. You don't have a way. <laughs> Wonder uh, who you're thinking about. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, if you're a uh, a small uh, provider of some kind of service where there's a lot of options, you're a doctor's office, for example, standalone doc. And uh, you know all your medical records are breached, and uh, it's very easy to to have all your patients decide. You know what? <laughs> I don't need this. Yeah, th- this is more headache than it's worth. That's that's a that could be absolutely devastating. So you know the one challenge that we all have, um, both from a business development standpoint, but even from a counseling standpoint, and and in-house executives and GCs have this all the time. So when when is it appropriate to worry about? this stuff. I mean, yes, intellectually, we understand that something can happen. But I mean, when do when do we call people? When do we engage? When do we start to prepare? It's a really great question. You know, when we do business deals, we start working on, okay, what's this, what's this going to look like? How do the various parties make money? What are the obligations that they have to one another? And then we always have, as part of the contracting process, a discussion about how do we back out of it in such a way that if we can't make this work, how do we get out of this without you know, really hurting each other or ourselves in the process? So before we actually begin the business operation, we're working on the contract, and that contract envisions a way to end it. Why don't we do the same thing with our IT systems? Why don't we do the same thing with our business operations when it comes to security issues? Uh, the answer to your question, I think, is that that is the time, right in the very beginning, to look at the defensive issues, not just how do we terminate it if it comes to that, but how do we identify where there's a problem and what a kind of remedy uh, should we expect from our counterparty in the event that it's the counterparty that's created a problem, or if it's if it's uh, a force majeure that right. we have to deal with? Uh, how do we manage it? That, that you know there are issues of insurance and all kinds of other stuff, but in the beginning we really need to think about what happens when things go 
differently from what is the day-to-day experience. Right. Um, so that means getting your hands around what is happening now, what the system has built into it, and two, what can happen, and three, what do we do if and when it does happen, right? Exactly. Was one of the things that we've been doing in the last few years uh, as an industry is trying to get our hands around what that looks like. Uh, Verizon's well-known annual data breach report yep. uh, it, it can be helpful for that sort of thing. I'm very critical of that report, however, because I can't validate the data. Sure. We've got data coming from a bunch of secret sources, and we're supposed to assume that everything is correct. We don't know for sure that the methodology is being applied well, but the fact of the matter is this is an immature field. We're just getting our hands around that kind of thing. So while I'm critical of it, I also recognize this is this is you know, work in its infancy. We all know that. Right. Uh, my firm has taken a different approach. Uh, my colleague Lee Ayers and I came up with a hierarchical taxonomy to classify data breach incidents. Uh, we've got a key that we associate with it. So rather than tagging things, you actually have to go through a process of answering a series of questions which will make it this is an X not Y and that allows us to do various kinds of statistical analysis um, as well. So there are different approaches to this but in all cases we're getting a lot more mature about how we go about answering those kinds of questions. Uh, At some level the executive just needs to understand things do go badly sometimes And just as in any operation, you need to recognize that you need to know when that happens and get some idea of what you're going to do about it. So choose a method to assess that sort of thing and uh, build your plans with the understanding that you have to deal with the exceptions when they arise. Well, we're going to have to hold it here. Um, It's been an exciting discussion. Please stay tuned for our next podcast in which we're going to talk about uh, data housing and operations um, and incident response plans and everything uh, a company in today's day and age uh, needs to be prepared for. Uh, For Antitrust Law Source, this has been Jay Levine and Matt Curtin. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.